You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's just gone 8 p.m. It's, I'm Alameen Templeton and this is Current Affairs. You're tuned into Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. Jazakam Allah for joining us. Well, we've got some interesting news coming up in the show tonight. Um, India exporting killer drones uh, to apartheid Israel. Is, has got all kinds of analysts uh, down on the subcontinent, most upset with the Modi government, uh, saying that it's likely to open up a whole mess of, uh, of legal cases uh, against, uh, against India. And uh, they say it really um, draws into question uh, Modi's uh, stated commitments to democracy and human rights. We have a look at what has happened since the ICJ issued its ruling uh, on January 26 last month, seeing what kind of steps uh, states have taken uh, in accordance with the, uh, with the court's ruling. Uh, what are they doing? Uh, does it look as though uh, the court is going to be listened to? The court didn't want to order a ceasefire because they're worried that... Uh, uh, Israel would simply ignore them. Well, it seems like uh, Israel is simply going to ignore them anyway. Stories coming out. This kind of like shows you, I, I think Israel, uh, is, Israelis have gone mad. I think Allah Ta'ala has put them into that downward spiral. The downward, downward spiral when a civilization, if you want to call it a civilization, or, or perhaps a, um, a, uh, a knot of, uh, of murderous, murderous depravity that makes up uh, the state of Israel today, has, has fallen into utter decline. I think uh, Israel is falling into intellectual and moral stagnation spiritual spiritual rot it has started to rot i don't think israelis are capable of of acting decently or even thinking normally <clears throat> palestinian detainees have uh, told uh, european uh, human rights organizations israeli civilians were permitted to watch and film them being tortured uh, by uh, police and soldiers you know, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, Nazi Germany. But uh, we will get to that a little bit later on, on in the show. Uh, and then uh, we'll be having a look at the Turkish Central Bank. Just uh, nine months ago, uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan picked Hafize Gaya Erkan as the country's first woman central bank governor. It came as a surprise to me. Many were surprised because it was a woman. I was surprised because she was from Goldman Sachs. Doesn't Erdogan know what Goldman Sachs has done to countries when uh, they were put in charge of their reserve banks? Well, uh, nine months later, the gestation period has ended in, uh, in a, uh, an early and unexpected termination. Uh, she has left. And now all kinds of stories are swirling as to what made her go. Uh, was she pushed? Uh, did, she, uh, did she not perform? Uh, what are the stories piling up uh, around uh, that Reserve Bank governor? Plenty of juice there. I'm sure you're going to find it interesting. 
Um, and then, of course, uh, they moves the foot in America to punish South Africa for daring to implement international, public international law at the ICJ and to prevent genocide. Now the United States is seeking to punish us. Uh, more, more news on that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, we always try and pack in more than we can uh, actually fit in, I suppose. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, that should, uh, should take us up to the top of the hour, I hope. I hope it will be enough. I hope it won't be too much. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Let's get back to in India exporting killer drones uh, to Nazi Israel. A news coming out today, Middle East Eye says the subcontinent is exporting what is called the gold standard of killer drones to the Israeli army, the Israeli Offense Force or Israeli Occupation Force, as it's called uh, in other areas. Uh, that has unleashed a storm of protest from human rights activists and defense analysts who say the move will further implica implicate India in Israel's genocide on Gaza. The delivery of the Hermes 900 drones comes as Israel airstrikes are pummeling Rafah, where nearly a million Palestinians are facing annihilation in a brewing major offensive on a densely crowded area. Now, many, many Western politicians are saying, oh, no, no, we don't think it's a good idea. Like, can you, do, do, do you think you would have stopped Hitler in the Second World War by saying, well, in actual fact, they did, and they know it doesn't work, because uh, England followed a policy of appeasement with Hitler. And until Winston Churchill came along, they were all like um, bending over backwards to try and please him in the hope that he would see common sense and come around to their side. Well, bullies never, ever respond to that kind of treatment. And just as Hitler did not respond to appeasement, so Israel is not going to respond to appeasement. Far more stronger action and far more stronger words are needed than Joe Biden's uh, limpid, it's over the top. Oh, you think it's over the top, Joe? Well... Old Genocide Joe. No one really knows if he is actually doing anything himself. He says he is, but no one's really sure. You know, I'm, he, he actually speaks about getting on a train and uh, meeting uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, in Ukraine. I actually really seriously suspect that that train trip never, ever happened. While Volodymyr has uh, confirmed and said that, yes, he met Biden... I think he may just be kind of like agreeing that he did because he knows that if he denies it, he's going to make America look bad and make the president look bad, and that's the last thing he can afford. This is not the first time uh, Joe Biden has said that he's, um, he's had these mysterious meetings with international leaders. He said he's had the same with China's Xi Jinping uh, and several other actors, and it has left the world... Uh, rather bemused because the stories uh, simply like just don't sound plausible whatsoever. And uh, that story about him getting on a train and, uh, and uh, being transported into Kiev on a train. Can you see the American president getting on a train to go and visit somebody somewhere else? No, that's never ever going to happen. The American president has never visited anyone by train. 
So I think it's a, a probably a boyhood fantasy more than anything else. I think that's probably the most plausible um, explanation for Joe Biden's claim that he met Zelensky uh, in a midnight visit uh, while the bombs were raining down. Perhaps at a later stage we'll do a show specifically on Joe Biden's uh, strange and um, strained uh, implausibilities in his memory gaps. Well, anyway, getting back to the drones, uh, the drones, India's drones, have been one of the mainstays of Israel's occupation in Gaza, uh, the genocide, where they use for intelligence gathering and murder. They're called Hermes 900 drones, can, a, can remain aloft for over 30 hours, hours, and, of course, as we say, can be used for reconnaissance and bombardment, for assassination and murder. Middle East Eye reports it's also known as the Hermes 900 Kochav, or Star, and is seen as the gold standard among drones. Among drones, It is one of the four killer drones Israel uses in its, uh, to roll out its genocide in Gaza. Girish Lingana, defense analyst in India, said it's highly likely the Adani Albert uh, drones will be used in Gaza. Shir Hever, the, for the Palestinian BDS National Committee, called India's closeness to Israel shameful given Israel, uh, in India's long history under colonial rule. Heather added, as Israel refuses to abide by the ICJ decision to refrain from actions under Article 2 of the Convention to Prevent Genocide, third states such as India have the responsibility to enforce an arms embargo and not be complicit in the genocide. He noted that since the two ICJ rulings, two Japanese arms companies have ended uh, their memorandums of understanding with Albert Systems. We've covered that on that show. Um, uh, Albert Systems, by the way, is Israel's largest weapons manufacturer. And uh, uh, since uh, subsequent to the ICJ ruling, a Dutch high court has banned the Netherlands from selling F-35 parts to Israel while the Gaza genocide continues. Heva says uh, this moment is a test of the international law system. He says instead of siding with Israel's genocide and enabling uh, Western powers, India should be taking inspiration from South Africa's Global South leadership and end its complicity with genocide. Lingana, a defense analyst, said the Israeli-India drone partnership was likely to raise legal and ethical quandaries for India. Uh, he said when India supplies dr drones to Israel, it becomes indirectly linked to any actions those drones take in Gaza. This blurs the line between supply and potential accomplice, even if India has no direct control over the, how the dr drones are used, are used. Activists said that while India has tried to portray its foreign policy towards Israel as unchanged, its actions suggest otherwise. Uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been slow to join the global call for a ceasefire, but he was among the first to condemn the Al-Aqsa storm operation on October 7. New Delhi has also abstained from the first ceasefire vote at the UN General Assembly and only signed the resolution late in December. New Delhi has also steered, steered clear from supporting South Africa's ICJ case at the International Court of Justice. The ICJ has found Israel is committing genocide in the Gaza Strip, and India has still refused to back the application. An Indian writer and activist, Achin Vanaik, 
said India's position should not be surprising to most people. He says, as it is, the official Indian response to the latest ICJ provisional ruling is that the Indian government has taken note of it. Oh, really? And it expressed deep concern about the allegations by Israel of the being Hamas members of the UNRWA, that's the United Nations Relief and Welfare Agency, who were dismissed prior to any investigation. Under Modi's leadership, India has grown considerably closer to Israel. New Delhi buys about a billion dollars worth of Israeli weapons every year. Between 2015 and 2019, Purchases of Israeli weapons increased by a massive 175%. And in that time, we have seen a far greater rapprochement between uh, the Nazi state and the apartheid states. I'm sorry, I know there are many people uh, who listen, who who love India. And for good good reason too, it's a beautiful country, a lovely country. But I still refer to it as apartheid India. Because they have on their constitution written into their statute books that they commit themselves to removing the caste system, and it's still in place, and no sign of it ever going anywhere. I know some people view it as a voluntary association system, but I haven't been to India and uh, seen the Dalits. I wonder if there's something like how many? 500 million Dalits who voluntarily agree to live uh, in sewers and uh, under corrugated iron sheets on the road. That's their house. Uh, yeah, that's, there's nothing voluntary about that, I'm afraid. Uh, so anyway, but uh, let's not g- get sidetracked, shall we? Um, now, India and Israeli weapons companies have started joint production in factories across India, pumping out Tavo X-95 assault rifles, the Galil sniper rifle, Negev light machine guns, as well as Hermes 900 drones, which are now due to be delivered shortly. I wonder if they will arrive before or after the attack on Rafa. Lingana said India prides itself uh, on a foreign policy emphasizing peace and humanitarian principles, but supplying weapons that could be used in a conflict where genocide is unfolding uh, creates tension with those values. So it seems the ICJ has made its ruling, but there are very significant powers at work who are trying to denigrate it or trying trying to trying to poo-poo it away and it certainly seems that subsequent to the ruling not many people are interested in implementing it what has happened since the ICJ issued its ruling have states taken steps to mitigate culpability in the wake of the court's orders well I'm afraid uh, that the only active resistance we've seen right now to halt the Gaza genocide, like active steps, is being provided by Yemen's Red Sea blockade. Yemen, which was under siege for eight years by Saudi Arabia, by the UAE, by France, Britain and the US, has experienced over 400,000 deaths from starvation, lack of health care, infectious diseases and the deliberate bombing of schools, hospitals, infrastructure, residential areas, markets, funerals and weddings. Yemenis know too well since at least 2017, multiple UN agencies have described Yemen as experiencing the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, what the Palestinians are enduring. 
Yemen's resistance when the history of this genocide is written will set it apart from nearly every other nation. The poorest nation, only the poorest nation in the world was willing to stand up and do what was required. The rest of the world, including the Arab world, retreats into this toothless rhetorical condemnations or are actively supporting Israel's obliteration of Gaza and its 2.3 million inhabitants. Uh, the Israeli newspaper Yedioff Aronov uh, has reported that the U.S. has sent 230 cargo planes and 20 ships filled with artillery shells, armored vehicles and combat equipment to Israel since the attacks on October 7. U.S. weapons and military equipment are being shipped to Israel, which is running out of munitions from the U.S. base RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus, according to the U.S. investigative website Declassified UK. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz has reported that more than 40 U.S. and 20 British transport aircraft, along with seven heavy lift helicopters, have flown into RAF Akrotiri, a 40-minute flight from Tel Aviv. Germany reportedly plans to provide 10,000 rounds of 120mm precision ammunition to Israel. That's for like heavy machine guns, uh, also uh, used uh, in uh, aircraft, 120mm, although also used uh, those big heavy machine guns on on the top of tanks. Uh, You can shoot a heavy oak tree that has grown for 800 years. Uh, you can cut it down in like 30 seconds with 120 million, 120 millimeter precision ammunition. If the ICJ rules against Israel, uh, finally, uh, these countries will be recognized by the world's most important international court as accomplices to genocide. Well, the ruling has been dismissed by Israel's leaders, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has painted the decision uh, not to demand a ceasefire as a victory for Israel. He said, like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. Israel is not a current country, I'm sorry. The vile attempt, he says, to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state. So genocide is defense, he says. Murdering civilians is defense. And he says it's justly rejected. He rejects it justly. (laughs) The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous. And decent people everywhere should reject it. He says, he goes on, he says that the decision of the anti-Semitic court in The Hague proves what was already known. This court does not seek justice, but rather the persecution of Jewish people. National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir said, They were silent during the Holocaust. They were silent during the Holocaust, and today they continue the hypocrisy and take it another step further. Um, uh, Just a little history lesson here. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, was founded in 1945 after the Nazi Holocaust. It didn't even exist during the Holocaust. The United Nations didn't exist. It was the League of Nations before that. And the first, court, first case that the ICJ heard was only in 1947. So Ben Gavir, he never lets facts get in the way of an opinion. He added, decisions that endanger the continued existence of the state of Israel must not be listened to. He says we must continue defeating the enemy until complete victory. 
So they made clear in public statements they will not be implementing any of the court's orders. Uh, the court, of course, rejected Israel's arguments to dismiss the case and acknowledged that the military operation being conducted by Israel has resulted in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. These things cannot be denied. Uh, just consider UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Martin Griffiths, who has called Gaza a place of death and despair. He says families are sleeping in the open as temperatures plummet. Areas where civilians were told to re relocate to for their safety have come under bombardment. Medical facilities are under relentless attack. The few hospitals that are partially functional are overwhelmed with trauma cases, critically short of all supplies and inundated by desperate people seeking safety. A public health disaster is unfolding. Infectious diseases are spreading in overcrowded shelters as sewers spill over. Over 180 Palestinian women are giving birth daily amidst this chaos. Can you imagine that? People are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded, and famine is just around the corner, if it's not already eating away at the, at the, at the edges. For children in particular, particularly children are kept at the edges because they're smaller, they're more vulnerable. Their immune systems haven't uh, developed, to the, the, haven't matured properly. The past, past 12 weeks have been hugely traumatic for them. No food, no water, no school, nothing. But the terrifying sounds of war, day in and day out, Gaza has become simply uninhabitable. That is the purpose, that is the intention of Israel's bombardment. It is trying to make it uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their existence while the world watches. Uh, the court was told an unprecedented 93% of the population in Gaza is facing crisis levels of hunger with insufficient food and high levels of malnutrition. At least 25% of households are facing catastrophic conditions, experiencing extreme lack of food and starvation, having resorted to selling off their possessions and other extreme measures to afford a simple meal. Starvation, destitute and death are evident everywhere. Uh, the ruling, quoting uh, Philippe, uh, Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner General for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, uh, called, called UNRWA, which is now under attack as well, of course. He says overcrowded and unsanitary UNRWA shelters have now become home to more than 1.4 million people. They lack everything from food to hygiene to privacy. People live in inhumane conditions where diseases are spreading, including among children. They live through the unlivable, with the clock ticking fast towards famine. The plight of children in Gaza is especially heartbreaking. An entire generation of children is traumatized and will take years to heal. Thousands have been killed, maimed and orphaned. Hundreds of thousands are deprived of education. Their future is in jeopardy with far-reaching and long-lasting consequences. Well, let's examine some of the comments made by multiple senior Israeli government officials advocating genocide after the case, including the President, the Minister of Defense, and several others, the Prime Minister. 
statements made by other officials form a crucial element of the intent component when proving genocide beyond reasonable doubt. And I'm sure these comments are going to come back to bite them. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant uh, has ordered a complete siege of Gaza with no electricity, no food, no fuel. That means death. He is intending death for everyone there. Everyone needs food. He says, I have released all restraints. You saw what we are fighting against. We are fighting human animals. This is the ISIS of Gaza. That is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. There will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. And they're showing how true that intention is. Naked and murderous as it is, they are seeking to reach all places in Gaza. And now they're right at the bottom, right there at Rafa. He says, Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. And it seems that that still remains the standing order. President Isaac Herzog uh, said, It is not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime. I'm sorry, uh, but uh, Mr. Herzog, they are fighting against an evil regime. It just happens to be yours. He says, we are at war, we're at war, we're defending our homes, we're protecting our homes. That's the truth. And when a nation protects its home, it fights, and we will fight until we break their backbone. So anyway, it seems like the ICJ um, came, came to the game and uh, played their proper role as they were supposed to. I'm quite sure having Judge Joan Donahue as the current president She's an American lawyer who used to work at the U.S. State Department and the Department of Treasury before she joined the World Court in 2010. Yeah, I wonder what kind of role she's playing in the court. Definitely there's something dodgy going on there. You'll recall that Uganda's Uganda's judge, Julia Sebutinde, uh, voted no against every single... um, application. She was roundly condemned by every living Ugandan. The government uh, distanced itself uh, from her and said they will have nothing to do with her. It was clear to everyone around the world that she had played a spoiler role, that she had played a bad judge role. Uh, Many people said she's taken a bribe. And who can blame them? And what's happened to her now? She has been elected to the ICJ as vice president. They have promoted her for her dirty deed, which is the reason why I ask Judge Joan Donahue, the current president of the ICJ. It will tell you, it will give an idea of just how much bias and prejudice that we're truly working against here. But nevertheless, you know, that ruling has, it has tarred Israel with the genocide brush. And that, uh, that is never, ever going to go away. That will never be allowed to go away. And we will remind them of these things. We will remind them and we will never forget as long as we're alive. 
and inshallah our memories will be passed on to successive generations. This is the sort of thing that must never be forgotten. A few years ago, I read a book by Hunter Grass. Uh, he wrote a, a more famous book called The Tin Drum uh, about 20 years ago. The book of his eyes reading was called A Portrait with a Lady. And basically it was a, a, a sort of like um, <clears throat> a fictional documentary of investigators, exactly who the investigators are, you never know, who've been asked to investigate a lady who may have, um, who may have stood, up against, uh, uh, stood up against the Nazis. And now they're trying to put together um, a clear idea of who she is. <clears throat> and uh, the book is a very painful reworking of the smallness of mind of Germans under Nazism. How small-minded they were. Uh, I won't get into too many details, um, but I can tell you uh, that at one stage, uh, the book describes how the Jewish detainees were brought through to treatment uh, centers where they would have to strip and put on those uh, those striped uniforms that they'd wear. And they have to go uh, uh, be sprayed down, be deloused, and all of that. And all the time and that all of this is happening, the workers there are taking photos of the naked woman. And they then selling the photos on the street. Well, now listen to what the Israelis are doing today. And tell me, tell me if this is not if this is not Nazi Germany, nineteen forty-two. Palestinian detainees have told the human rights monitors that Israeli civilians were permitted to watch and laugh and film them, film them being tortured and abused by Israeli soldiers. The Israeli army allowed groups of Israeli civilians to witness Palestinian detainees being tortured and to film the crimes on their own phones. According to shocking testimonies received by the Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitor. Uh, the human rights group this week shared testimonies from recently released Palestinian detainees stating that groups of 10 to 20 Israeli citizens at a time were permitted to watch and laughingly film. Palestinian prisoners and detainees in their underwear, while Israeli army soldiers subjected them to physical abuse. That include beating them with metal, metal batons, electric sticks, and pouring hot water on their heads. The detainees were also verbally abused. Those detainees were arrested during ground incursions by Israeli forces into the Gaza Strip and held for varying periods of time inside two detention centers one located in the Zikim area of the northern border of the Gaza Strip and another affiliated with the Nakha prison in southern Israel. This is the first time that these illegal practices have come to the attention of Euromed Monitor, the organization said. It adds a new crime to the list of those committed by the Israeli army against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and specifically against prisoners and detainees who are subjected to cruel torture enforced disappearances arbitrary arrests and denial of a fair trial, among other atrocities. Umar Abu Mudalala, 43, told the Euromed Monitor team, I was arrested at the checkpoint set up near the Kuwait roundabout. 
as part of the Israeli random arrest campaigns. I was subjected to all types of torture and abuse for approximately 52 days. He said Israeli soldiers brought Israeli civilians to watch our new torture. The soldiers, he explained, told civilians, these are Hamas terrorists who killed you and raped your woman on 7 October. While the Israeli civilians were filming us being beaten, abused and tortured while making fun of us. Abu Mudalala said, this happened five times while I was being held. He said he was blindfolded the first time, but in the other four incidents we were not wearing blindfolds. I saw them all four times with my own eyes. Another detainee, uh, not named or identified, has said Israeli civilians were brought to witness the abuse and torture we were subjected to. They took pictures of us and posted them on social media apps, especially TikTok, with the soldiers themselves doing the same thing. The rice group said the Israeli army's torture and inhumane treatment of Palestinian prisoners and detainees is illegal under the Rome Statute and constitutes crimes against humanity. The army's staging of these abuses as entertainment for Israeli civilians and subsequent photography of the victims amounts to a grave violation of the dignity of these individuals as well as the commission of war crimes, it said. It further asserted Israeli practices against Palestinian detainees are blatant violations of international conventions and standards, particularly the 1949 4th Geneva Convention. So now, what's going on in Turkey? Uh, as I said, Hafize Gaya Erkan, about nine months ago, was made the, the country's first female central bank governor, and everyone was surprised. Most people were surprised that Erdogan had picked a woman. I was surprised that Erdogan had picked someone from Goldman Sachs. We know what Goldman Sachs did during the financial meltdown in 2008. Uh, while recommending people uh, buy products of uh, some of their client companies, they were actively betting against those very same products. In, in other words, they, they were putting their money uh, where they knew the money was going to go. And that was those products were going to go down. And they were betting against those products staying up, <clears throat> like a collateralized debt obligations, those kind of products we're talking about now, banking products. <clears throat> so Goldman Sachs, uh, subsequent to Goldman Sachs, also oversaw, oversaw the routing and um, had a, how do you call it? It was, it was like a sort of a state coup by the EU against one of its own members. Greece, during the Greek, Greek financial meltdown, uh, it was Goldman Sachs uh, that was put in charge of selling off all of those bonds which came to naught. Uh, and Goldman Sachs won't hesitate uh, to um, do the dirty on a client country if it can make some quick bucks out of it. So anyway, that's the reason why. I suppose uh, uh, Erdogan was hoping that uh, he'd be able to convince uh, international observers that he's, uh, he's willing to 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 accept to accept almost anyone from the banking industry as long as they're competent. Uh, Erkan Hafize Gaya Erkan was nominated by the new finance minister Mehmet Simsek. She came to the fore with strong educational and professional credentials, including a recent role as a top official in a, an American bank. 
Erdogan, who appreciates people with Western education and experience, likely chose a believing in her qualifications, but also banking on her profile and experience, profile and experience according to, to sources familiar with the issue. It was thought the appointment, breaking a glass ceiling, would look good in the West and among foreign investors. Additionally, appointing a woman central bank governor was rumored to be on the opposition's agenda had they won the presidential election last May. Before the election, Erdogan's obsession with lowering interest rates while imposing sudden changes on central bank governors had triggered a vicious circle of inflation and depreciation for the Turkish lira. The president changed course after the election with the appointment of mainstream former economy official Simsek as finance minister and Erkan, who quickly reigned in the central bank, delivering one interest rate increase after the other, taking it from 8.5% in May to 45% in January. Erkan helped improve Turkey's financial credibility and investor trust. But less than nine months after winning the job, she was sacked, sparking as much surprise as her initial appointment. Shocked by the dismissal, European officials and observers questioned whether sexist allegations against her in Turkish media were behind the decision. But but sources close to the government paint a different story, one filled with internal strife, long absences and accusations of misconduct. Even though many hadn't heard of her before her short stint at the central bank, Erkan wasn't a total stranger in government circles. While working at the investment bank Goldman Sachs, assuming different roles over nine years, including heading financial institutions, she had many engagements with the Turkish officials and companies with ties to the current government. Simsek himself met her during a financial roadshow in the U.S. in the early 2010s. But Erkan's impeccable CV, which includes a PhD in risk management, had already been dented due to her tenure at San Francisco-based First Republic Bank, where she first worked as in chief investment officer, then as the bank's president and finally as chief executive until she left in December 2021. Um, The bank later went bankrupt and closed down in May 2023, one month before Erkan's appointment in Turkey. Her run-ins with other senior executives there were described as toxic, according to the Financial Times, insinuating her her conduct might have complicated the bank's already stressed structure. However, her first months as Turkey's central bank governor were calm and competent as she delivered a succession of interest rate increases and simplified the financial system to better help its restoration. One month after her appointment in June, Erdogan named several economists to the bank's monetary policy committee, further strengthening the bank's credibility. They included well-known banker Chevdet Akçay, Fatih Karahan, a former principal economist with Amazon, and Hatice Karahan, a long-time Erdogan, Erdogan advisor. Then that's when the trouble began. According to two sources with knowledge of the issue, over time Erkan started to have a difficult relationship with Akçay and Hatice Karahan. Uh, Karahan, watching Turkish miniseries, Karahan, that means um, Black King, Hatice Karahan. Erkan treated the Monetary Committee not as a consultation body, but merely as having a symbolic role while following the governor's wishes. The sources said Erkan specifically ex- excluded Hatice Karahan from investor engagements, even though that was her job description. 
By November, following her presentation of an inflation report to the media, Erkan started to spend her time mainly at their central bank's Istanbul branch rather than in the capital Ankara. She also acquired the services of a public relations professional. In December, she gave an interview to the pro-government daily Hurriyet, which sparked criticism against her. Erkan told the newspaper she couldn't afford to rent an apartment in Istanbul, finding it more expensive than Manhattan which forced her to stay at her mother's house instead. The comment was quickly dismissed by commentators as a public relations stunt, since she was paid a high salary and owed assets worth millions of dollars from her banking career. She also said she, asked, she had asked Erdogan to give her three strategic sectors to incentivize and support, such as the defense industry, which has grown over the years under the president's directive. The remarks made the rounds in Ankara, with some viewing it as Erkan stepping out of her line as a bureaucrat and moving towards politics. Some wondered whether she had wishes to become prime minister. Then came issues regarding her father Errol. According to several officials, Hafiza relied on her parents for help at the bank when she needed to care for a baby boy who was nine months old when she assumed her new role. But by January, Errol, her father, was accused of behaving like a de facto chief of staff, firing and disciplining uh, personnel at will, according to a central bank worker, who filed a petition to the presidency with these complaints. The employee, Busra Buskurt, who was fired from the bank allegedly by Errol, later told the media Errol also allegedly slapped an employee at the bank. Errol told local media the allegations against him were part of a conspiracy, adding that some orchest someone orchestrated systematic attacks against him and his daughter, calling the reports fake news. Boskut also revealed to the media that Hafiza spent almost a month in the U.S. just before Christmas and until after the New Year for investor meetings. Two separate sources, however, said she didn't assign a deputy to take over responsibilities while away. Hafiza later denied the allegations, calling them a smear campaign, and said she would file a complaint against those behind it, but the damage was done. Endless rumors started to circulate within the corridors of ministries and among foreign investors, easing up her credibility. With the scandals piling up, investors and Turkey-focused analysts started to informally play a bet on whether Erdogan would sack Erkan for her father's conduct. With decisive local elections coming up in March, many thought he would wait until after then. Simsek, a former Wall Street banker himself, had become aware of the loss of confidence by the markets in Erkan, the very person he single-handedly brought to the office. He also recognized the growing tensions between Erkan and the Monetary Committee staff and concerns that some members could resign, which would further erode the hard-earned credibility of the bank within the international financial world. Erkan had another disadvantage. She lost her political trust within the ruling AK party. Four separate Turkish officials said that as Erkan excelled in her job, her father began promoting her as the most likely first ever woman president of the Turkish Republic, raising eyebrows among top advisors. Now, just go to show her those proud fathers. Oh, they love their daughters so much. Oh, it's amazing. That's amazing, uh, the love. The love uh, a father can feel for a daughter, huh? Sure. Kiss him. Kiss him, as they called in, uh, in, uh, in Turkey. Kiss him. My, 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 my pledge, my loyalty, my, 
my um, my Imamat Kusum. <clears throat> then Simsek made up his mind. After the Monetary Committee meeting that increased interest rates to 45% in late last month, uh, the finance minister paid Erdogan a visit. Simsek broke down how Erkan's responsibility had been eroded by the allegations against her. He told the president that keeping her in her post until the elections could lead to further disarray at the bank, undermining Turkey's standing in financial markets. He suggested as the replacement Fatih Karahan, who was a former official at the prestigious Federal Reserve Bank of New York. When Erkan returned to Turkey from a short investment trip to Spain, Simsek told her she was going to be replaced. The finance ministry, the central bank and the presidency then worked on a series of public statements which painted Erkan's departure as a personal choice to protect her and her family against smear campaigns. Simsek in a formal statement said Erdogan would appoint a new governor in line with his recommendation, a sign of trust that, he hadn't been, that, he hadn't, that hasn't been given to any finance minister before. One Turkish official said the president wanted to show financial markets that the change wasn't about the financial policies implemented by Erkan. It's about restoring the credibility of the bank beyond those concerns. Another official said the sacking was a concrete confirmation that Simsek was now the ultimate person in charge of the economy, receiving a rarely seen independence and authority from Erdogan. So that's what's going on in Turkey. Well now, what's happening in America? Well, in America, they don't like uh, what we call the little states. And little states from getting too big for their boots and presuming they can just enter the International Court of Justice and sue one of the big states. Well... Not only did they presume that they could do it, they did do it, and they succeeded. Now, Congressman James, John James and Jared Moskowitz have introduced a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives that seeks to undergo a review of the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and South Africa. The U.S.-South Africa Bilateral Relations Review Act would require a full review of the bilateral relationship between the United States and South Africa, given South Africa's recent positioning and coordination with America's adversaries, the two men say. Uh, James said in a statement afterwards, South Africa has been building ties to countries and actors that undermine America's national security and threaten our way of life through its military and political cooperation with China and Russia and its support of U.S.-designated terrorist organization Hamas. Under this current administration, America has been put last, leaving our allies and partners beholden to dictators and despots in Beijing and Moscow for critical needs like energy. He added that to ensure the security of the U.S., we must examine our alliances and disentangle them from those who remain willing to work with our enemies. The bill, the bill alleges that South Africa has a history of siding with malign actors, and that its support for Hamas goes back to 1994 when the ANC first came to power. Because, as they say, South Africa has been consistently accusing Israel of practicing apartheid. Like people from who lived through apartheid wouldn't know. South Africa has accused Israel of genocide and has taken them to the International Court of Justice. 
Israel has rejected the filing, calling it a blood libel. The ICJ has denied uh, Israel's quest, request to drop the case and has ordered it to prepare a report by the 26th of January outlining exactly what it has done to mitigate any genocide that is happening and to take action against people who advocate genocide against, uh, against the Palestinians. So, it really, where are we going to go now? We've seen uh, more and more uh, politicians coming out, businessmen coming out, uh, corporations coming out, and governments coming out uh, against this war in Gaza. I wonder what the Japanese are making of it. Uh, one of their defense companies uh, recently uh, asked the Japanese government uh, for guidance on what they should do about providing parts and arms to Israel uh, in the light of the ICJ ruling. Uh, they, the Japanese government said, well, you must implement uh, the ruling to the best of your ability. And as a result, they cut ties with Israel. Are you going to be able to say after the fact that you didn't know if you were on public fora repeatedly warned again and again and again saying that this is going to lead to genocide? In the fact, this is genocide. No. No, it doesn't seem to have made any difference whatsoever. And now a million people are gathered in Rafa, preparing for ethnic cleansing. And it is not looking good at all. And I mean, uh, you, you look at the pictures coming out of Gaza now, these tented cities that they're trying to erect to try and... Um, you know, it's it's a clearly identifiable area now. That these aren't those 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 concrete and brick and glass and metal buildings that you've been blowing up. Now these are just little tents. And you can see that Israel is even bombing the tents. Even bombing the tents. We we we've heard that over two thousand graves have been dug up by the Israelis since this genocide started. Even the death of finding no refuge from these Nazis. I don't think Hitler ever got that bad. Yes, and now, now, on the 13th of February, on the 130th day of the genocide, an Israeli ground invasion of Rafa, the most densely populated area in Gaza, appears imminent. Days after a devastating night of airstrikes on the southern city, at least 67 people were killed after Israeli air forces struck 14 homes and three mosques yesterday. The population of Rafah, which spans just 150 square kilometers, has increased fivefold since war broke out on 7 October. It is now home to 1.5 million displaced Palestinians. The majority of them are living in makeshift homes and tents after being forcibly ejected by Israel from northern and central areas of Gaza in recent months. Uh, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reiterated his intent for an imminent ground invasion, 
We're going to do it. We're going to get the remaining Hamas terrorist battalions in Rafah, he said. He added it would be done while providing safe passage for the civilian population. Details of which he said Israel was working out. When pressed where those supposed safe areas were, he pointed towards plenty of areas that we've cleared north of Rafah. So he says north of Rafah, not south in the, in the desert. But aid works insist no such safe zones exist in the besieged bombard, bombarded enclave. Said Ahmed Bayram, the Norwegian Refugee Council's regional media and communications advisor, there hasn't been a safe place for Palestinians for months. Even Rafah has come under bombardment repeatedly. The safe routes and zones that Israel unilaterally, uh, unilaterally designated as, as it announced relocation orders have seen bloodshed and repeated attacks. Civilians have exhausted all options. Rafah was their last resort and now there is nowhere safe to flee to. Hassan Ben Imran, an international law expert, expert and board member for, for uh, law for Israel, said a Rafah ground invasion would breach the provisional measures the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to abide by last month. An invasion would definitely mean Israel is breaking the ICJ order, more so than before, because this area is supposed to be a safe zone, he said. Invading that territory means you're going to be invading the camping sites where people are building their tents. He added such a land operation could only be understood under, could only be understood under Article C of the Genocide Convention, which prohibits deliberately inflicting conditions that bring about partial or full destruction of an ethnic group. Among the orders ordered by the ruling was to uh, refrain from obstructing delivery of aid. Amid insufficient aid supplies crossing Rafah, Israeli bombardment of areas close to aid operations put the entire aid, risk, aid system at risk of suspension and collapse, said Bayram. Israeli operations have drawn nearer to heavily populated shelters. We are fearing the worst if Israel's plan goes ahead. He added that aid workers were now at risk of being cut off from the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt, which has provided the only humanitarian lifeline for Palestinians under siege. The Kerem Shalom crossing between Israel and Egypt, meanwhile, has been closed for extended periods. A spokesman for medical aid for Palestinians uh, said a ground invasion would lead to the killing and injuring of more civilians. There are only a handful of hospitals in Rafah and they are already overwhelmed by the influx of injuries resulting from Israel's ongoing bom uh, bombardment. Urgent international action is needed to avert this latest catastrophe. While no, with no safe zones anymore, despite Netanyahu's claims, Palestinians fear that displacement from Rafah, the southernmost point in the enclave, could come in the form of being forcibly evicted into Egypt's Sinai province. Uh, they, have t they have said before that proposals to create a humanitarian corridor between Gaza and Egypt's Sinai were akin to a second Nakba, alluding to the mass displacement of 750,000 Palestinians in 1948. Uh, Itay uh, Efstein uh, has argued that the Rafah offensive would be part of plans to forcibly deport Palestinians. Uh, he referenced an uh, Israeli military intelligence report from October, which outlined four stages of the war, vacating northern Gaza for a ground invasion, ground operations from north to south, opening routes from Rafah to Egypt, and finally establishing ten cities in northern Sinai to resettle Palestinians. Stage three is operationalized at present and may very well lead to stage four, he said. 
Egyptian officials are very wary that a land operation could force Palestinians towards the border with Egypt. Uh, Egyptian security forces are now fortifying the fence separating Egypt and Gaza with barbed wire. Uh, Egypt has also, also deployed 40 tanks and armored personnel carriers to roughly bolster security around the border. Uh, ben Imran from Law for Palestine said Egypt is not an option. Moving the people into Egypt is ethnic cleansing. He said if Israel wanted to create a safe passage for civilians, it needed to open the areas crossing into Israel. Let those people come into those territories until the fighting is over, Ben Imran said. And at the end, let's not forget that 80% of the people of Gaza are originally from the surrounding cities which make up the state of Israel. And with that, then, we come to the end of the show. Yes, I'm afraid we have now run out of time. Run out of time once again. Oh, well, we'll be back tomorrow, inshallah, between 8 and 9. More current affairs uh, with the market focus. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow, Wednesday, we have um, Market Matters. Uh, at lunchtime instead of Eye on the World, which we usually have. So, yes, join us for that. <clears throat> A lot more interesting views and news coming up. And stay tuned to Marcus Sahaba, the online site that brings you truth 24 hours a day. Jazakam Allah for joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.